Hello ladies and gentlemen this is Nishant and welcome to another episode of the Nishant Gurg show the mission of this show is to spread awareness on mindfulness practices psychology mental health and spirituality my job on the show is to invite world class performers to share the practices to live a fulfilled life this episode guest is Laura Bakosh PhD Laura is a mindfulness teacher, researcher and co-founder of Inner Explorer, a non-profit organization that brings mindfulness-based social emotional learning programming to preschool through high school classrooms. She was trained as a mindfulness-based stress reduction instructor through the Center for Mindfulness at the University of Massachusetts. She has practiced and studied mindfulness for 27 years. She began teaching the skills to children 13 years ago and quickly realized that it was difficult for children to commit to a daily practice at home and was difficult for many teachers to lead such practices in the classroom this was the foundational insight that led to the development of inner explorer an audio guided program that made it easy for teachers and students to practice together each day laura believes that daily mindfulness practice is the most important education equity and social justice initiative of our time as it can help to close the achievement gap break the cycle of poverty and improve well-being in this episode lara talks about intermittent fasting awareness of thoughts mindfulness and meditation for children she also guides us through one minute guided meditation and to know more keep listening lara welcome to the show ah uh, thank you glad to be here Did you have breakfast? What did you have? You know what? I am on a little bit of an intermittent fasting regimen, so I'm not eating breakfast. Intermittent so, fasting? Of, Why? Yeah. Um, just, I've read a little bit about the health benefits, and so I wanted to try it out. You know, being stationary at my desk, having all of us on lockdown has kind of inhibited my ability to get enough exercise, so I'm trying to balance out some of that with... Uh, how I'm eating and and when I'm eating. How are you dealing with the stress and anxiety during COVID? And that actually is where um, mindfulness comes into play. So, with high stress and anxiety and things based on environmental situations like COVID, or you know, there's fires and floods and hurricanes, and there's seems to be all kinds of things that come our way year to year. But mindfulness really does help me and. many others feel less stressed and more clear about what's happening and what we need to do about it so it's really a gift actually to have that clarity of mind when you're dealing with something that's really difficult like you know this pandemic is it possible that somebody who doesn't have mindfulness practices may go through more stress and anxiety during covid-19 for sure there there are a few things we know without a doubt and one of them is that practicing mindfulness significantly reduces stress and anxiety it's not just a little bit it's a lot and so in time in regular times let's say prior to covid we were seeing enormous jumps in stress and anxiety in adults and in children most of your listeners probably have seen reports about the increases in suicide and addiction 
and depressive disorders and anxiety disorders. They, you know, there's a lot of talk about how many meds we're pushing out to, to people of all ages to try to manage some of these, even sleep disruption. A lot of people are, are experiencing many of those things. However, when people learn how to practice mindfulness and when they do it consistently, those issues subside greatly. It doesn't solve every problem, of course, and it doesn't take every single issue and make it into a non-issue, but it, it very much reduces the impact. So if you're, let's say, right, right now, the, the research is showing that about 50% of Americans right now, and, and this is probably true globally, but about 50% of people are suffering from stress, anxiety, and fear, which would, of course, be normal given what During we're COVID? Doing. Yes. Yep. So in clinical, from a clinical perspective, stress and anxiety is upwards of you know 35%. And when you add fear to that, it kind of brings you up to the, the 50% mark. And with mindfulness, we continue to hear reports that those issues are solved by 20, 30, 40%. For instance, if think about it, you know, in the days of a week, if, if you are suffering several days a week from some of these disorders, it would be, you know, cut by 20, 30, 40%. So, you know, it's hard to, when you, when you think about how that's affecting people, of course, it affects people differently. So it's hard to have one broad brush answer. But we do know that the symptoms go down by 20, 30, 40%, depending on the condition and the person. What could be the symptoms of anxiety? You know, if acute anxiety would be, you know, racing heart, sweaty, a lot of sort of like intellectual confusion, you know, just racing thoughts. So they call that a narrative or they call that rumination sometimes, but those thoughts of, of dread. So like, I can't do this. I'm never going to be able to do this. This is going to overwhelm me. What am I going to do? I can't handle it. Those kinds of things would just be playing over and over and over in the head. And then the physical body responds with this faster heart rate. It, it sort of triggers the fight or flight response in the body, which, you know, that now you're having all kinds of, you know, uh, adrenaline and those kinds of things coursing through your veins and it makes for a very discomfort you know a lot of discomfort a very uncomfortable environment so a lot of people suffer from anxiety and a lot of people take medication to try to solve for that which is fine but the research does show that mindfulness is as effective as drug therapy to solve for things like anxiety and depression which is really astounding. Right? If you think, if you just stop and you think about that one fact for a minute. And what's sad is most people don't know that. Most people just, you know, you have an issue and you could, you seek care from your doctor and your doctor might say, here's a few things you could do. And so you're kind of like, all right, I need to get rid of this problem. I'm going to just take medication that's, that's shown to work. I mean, that makes perfect sense. But if the doctors and, and if these people, you know, if people knew, hey, if I just commit to doing mindfulness and I'm consistent for a week or two, I'm going to solve my own problem, right? Is and mindfulness I'm, a substitute for a doctor? 
No, 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 definitely not. Of course, you know, most medical conditions require medical care, and that's perfectly rational. What I'm saying is that mindfulness would be considered preventative care. So, well, there's two pathways. One is preventative. So we brush our teeth every day. Most of us, right? So <laughs> hopefully two times a day, right? But at least once. And the reason that we do that is that there's so much scientific evidence showing us that by brushing every day, we avoid developing cavities, we avoid gum disease, and we have fresher breath, which is nice too. So for those reasons, we don't question teeth brushing. And, and what I'm suggesting here and, and and I've suggested it in other places, is that if everybody practiced mindfulness every day, we would have 30, 40, maybe 50% fewer mental health issues as a population. So fewer people getting addicted, fewer people with suicide ideation, fewer people with anxiety and depression, right? And, and oh my gosh, we'd probably have happier people because mindfulness is linked to connection um, with one another. It's linked to an identification of your purpose in life. You know, a lot of people struggle because they don't know what they're supposed to be doing and they don't, they don't have a sense of that. Mindfulness helps them tap into what that is for, for people. And it also brings about qualities like compassion and empathy, which goodness, do we need more of today? And, and those things are all scientifically proven. It's not wishy-washy like, oh, I, I think this is kind of nice. These are rigorous scientific studies that show the brain changes in positive ways that promote learning, that promote connection, that promote compassion. And it's something that probably everybody would benefit from. The vast majority of us would benefit from doing this every day as a preventative measure. And then back to the medical question, you would need to see a doctor less often. Right? If you're healthier, just like with your teeth, you don't need to get your teeth drilled all the time because you're protecting them every day. <laughs> I know it's a weird example, but it's really helps people kind of get to the point where the, this is 10 minutes a day we're talking about. I'm not saying go sit in a room for five hours. I'm saying in 10 minutes a day, science shows that this is pr protective for your brain health and it promotes well-being and it would probably get a lot of us off some of the meds that we're currently on. As a listener to this podcast, I'm driving car and I'm listening to this podcast and I'm thinking, I have never done mindfulness. Where should I start from, Laura? Mm, that's a really good question. So I oftentimes would lead a little practice. And if if you're driving or if you're not driving, I'll give you an experience of what it is, if that's okay, just for one minute. Please. Um, so if you're driving, please don't close your eyes. But if you are not driving and you can safely do so, please close your eyes or look downward and simply noticing what it feels like to be sitting. You know, as you take a deep breath in and out, just at whatever pace is comfortable for you, just bringing your awareness to where your legs are touching the surface of whatever you're sitting on. And of course, if you're driving, continue to watch the road with your hands on the wheel. And if you're at home, you can just rest your hands gently on your lap or beside you, whatever's comfortable. And as you take another breath in and out, 
Just being aware of the movement of your abdomen and your chest and maybe even your shoulders as you breathe. Just simply noticing as the air goes in and out of your body. And I'll invite you now to just sort of, you know, open your eyes if they were closed or kind of tune back in uh, to the program. That that was mindfulness in a very brief <laughs> Was moment. it meditation? So that's a that's a really great question, and it's a big question in our field. So meditation and mindfulness are often used synonymously, and there is quite a bit of confusion because to some people, meditation means sitting on the top of a mountain with your hands in a certain pose and the idea is that you're clearing your mind. And that is exactly the opposite of mindfulness. And so I generally don't use the word meditation, even though there's some aspects of what mindfulness is that, that could be you know, called meditation. But, but mindfulness is a very specific practice that invites each of us to explore our inner landscape in detail. So we, some people would say that the world around us is not as vast as the world within us. So that, you know, as you consider that idea, right, we are, we are amazing human beings. And most of us spend very, very little time figuring out who we are, what we are, what we want. Right, we're, we're guided by the external world of our parents and our friends and what society tells us we should be and who we should be and how we should be. And, and we don't really ever explore who we are. So what mindfulness invites people to do is just be aware, to, to focus inward. To, you know, we sometimes will say to kids, it's like you kind of flip your, your head open and you have a flashlight and you're kind of looking around in there. You're not trying to push anything away. You're not trying to get rid of challenging thoughts. You're just trying to notice them and, and understand them better. So the, the reality is that about 60% of our thoughts are outside of awareness. Right? 60% of what we think about every day, day in, day out, we're not even really aware of. And on top of that, as a human being, we have about 50,000 thoughts a day on average. So that means that 25 to 30,000 thoughts are happening in our head every single day that we don't even know what we're saying. For many people, and this is the challenge, those thoughts tend to swing negative, right? We have, a, most humans have a, what's called a negativity bias that's to protect us. So we, we see things from the lens of what might be scary or harmful so that we can protect ourselves. But that kind of goes, you know, to the extreme for a lot of people. And in children, sometimes it's like, no one likes me. I don't have any friends. I didn't get invited to that party. I'm a loser. I shouldn't be here. Nobody, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. My parents are, are mean and they, you know, or my parents' divorce is my fault. And so when those things become habitual, that's what starts to drive us into despair. So there's a category of disorders called diseases of despair. And it's sort of a newish term, but diseases of despair include depression, anxiety, addiction, suicide, or suicide ideation, which means thinking about killing yourself, but before you do it. 
So those that, that category of disorders really is based on these habits of mind that become so overwhelming that people try to find an escape, right? So when you're telling yourself, and you don't even realize because 60% of it is outside of your awareness, you're telling yourself that you are terrible and you don't deserve to live, and you're doing that over and over and over and over again every day or many days, those pathways, those neural pathways get stronger, right? So, so the next time you're sad or you're triggered and you go into that state of I'm a loser and I don't deserve to live, that state is, is stronger and it has more of a pull. So you can see why people try to escape from these thoughts through substances or other, you know, behaviors that aren't really good for them or healthy for them. And you can see why over time when that's your narrative day in and day out, nobody knows that that's your narrative. That's a secret, right? You're not usually telling people that. And then all of a sudden you can't bear it anymore. And and suicide seems like the best option. Like think about how, what your thinking is like if, if suicide seems like the best option. Like your thinking is, is, has gone to a place that is really, really unhealthy. So mindfulness helps children and adults understand that thought, all of those thoughts. So you bring all of that that's unconscious to conscious just by paying attention. And when you do that regularly, you see patterns that are emerging about maybe you're hating yourself. And and when you spend time in stillness, you start to tap into your potential and your purpose. And that is what helps lift you out because you can start to question that narrative. Like, am I a jerk? Am I, do I deserve to die? Right? You, you start to question it from an inner place. People don't understand. Like, you go to a counselor, they can't help you do that. Only you can do that. And it's a practice and it's a process, but it works. not alone in this journey we all struggle in life there is no shame in talking about it i go through my highs and lows i get depressed but these practices really help me in living a resilient and mindful life you can also do this you got this don't judge yourself you mentioned that awareness of thoughts we are not aware of our thoughts and mindfulness can help in generating that awareness of thoughts when we are aware of our thoughts we don't have to keep thinking about i'm not good enough i'm not this or i'm not that and we can do something if mindfulness is basically a breathing exercise what you just went us through that why people still don't do it Ah, yes, good question. So in mindfulness is, is, is broader than what I just shared. That would be kind of the start. So mindfulness is a process where we, so the, the format that we use is called mindfulness-based stress reduction or MBSR. And that's worth looking up if, if anybody's interested. MBSR has been around 
for about 40 years. It is the format of training that is the most well studied of any other, you know, there's, there's, there's meditation, there's mindfulness, there's transcendental meditation, there's yoga, there's all kinds of different pathways. So MBSR is the most studied of all of those categories. So there's a rigorous study. It's based on a protocol. So we teach people first about just basic breathing and some relaxation or just awareness of how the body's feeling, if it's relaxed or not relaxed. Then we move into um, sense awareness. So kind of tuning in with, you know, to what you're hearing, to what you're feeling, to what you're smelling. Then we Can we do to, this with our eyes open? Oh, so that's, yes, is the short answer. Not ideal is maybe the, the real answer. But this is not meditation. What isn't? What, oh, this practice of sensory of our awareness, of our thoughts. So again, like the word meditation is, is really, really broad. So I, I don't usually use it very often, but when you're closing your eyes, that for instance, if you know anybody's not driving right now and they're closing their eyes and they're listening to my voice, that's a, that's a practice of mindfulness of just really tuning in and focusing on the voice or the, the sense of sitting on a chair or with a back against the, the back of the chair and so on. Those are sense awarenesses, but mindfulness then moves into thought awareness where we're encouraging listeners to just consider what thoughts are coming and going. So as I'm talking, somebody might be thinking, oh, shoot, I forgot to put the laundry in the dryer. <laughs> right? It happens or, all the time. Oh, my goodness, right? We're all, I mean, 50,000 thoughts a day. We, we're off in, into thought all the time. So mindfulness is just the practice of continuing to bring us back to whatever our experience is. And sometimes like that scary thought might, might inhabit your, oh, I, I have this big presentation at work today or whatever. And, and so it's a lot of us would tend to just say, oh, let's not think about that. I'm not, you know, or some people would be overwhelmed by that and just think about it constantly over and over and like catastrophize, right? Start like feeling terrible, even though nothing terrible has happened yet. And with mindfulness, it's really just about having this openness to what's coming and going and an awareness that none of that is permanent, right? It comes and goes and, come, and that we can sort of have a little bit of separation. We're the thinker of the thoughts. We're not the thoughts. Most of us get carried and dragged around by our thoughts all day long. And what we're seeing is when you start to settle and practice in this way, you realize thoughts come and go. They don't define you. They don't control you. They're just thoughts. And some of them, you know, can be challenging and you can still allow those to kind of be there without pushing them away. And we challenge our thoughts through mindfulness? Yes. So that is the, the sort of the second step. You know, once you have this skill of awareness and you're really paying attention to like your moment to moment existence, and this isn't all the time every day, you know, I'm not saying you just, most people don't live that way all the time, but the practice helps you be that way more often. So yes, you can, when you hear yourself saying, oh, whatever, you know, some negative tone, you can kind of say, wait, wait a minute, is that true? And that's how you can start to reorient your life. That happened to me yesterday. Oh, you're kidding. Tell me. Tell me what happened. I forgot to do something and that inner voice came, you are a lazy ass. Then I was aware of my thought. I said, you're not a lazy ass, you just forgot. 
Ah, beautiful. I changed the narrative. That is beautiful. And that is so powerful. Now, do you practice yourself? Are you? Every uh, single day. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So you understand. Because it's hard to challenge those thoughts if you don't come from a place of sort of deep knowing about yourself. Right. If if you sort of are pretty close to the feeling that I do think I'm a lazy ass, it's hard <laughs> to challenge that. But when you when you're practicing and you realize, you know what, I am a I am an amazing human being, then you can challenge that effectively, I think. Mindfulness brings more of our good qualities that we already have as human beings. It mm-hmm. doesn't make any situation better you know stress anxiety the trauma COVID-19 they all will come and go it just we can deal with those situations in a better way exactly that's so well said Laura how does your family describe what you do for a living (laughs) (laughs) that is a funny question on many levels (laughs) I am so I you know I've been practicing for 20 some odd years now 25 26 years And I really had done it just to manage my own stress of work and travel. I work for a big corporation. But since I started doing this work with children and schools, I have kind of gone all in. Like I'm so passionate about what this means for children. Like we have so many challenges that we face as a humanity, right? Besides the global, whatever, people call it global warming, global climate change. But we have so many other, like we have generational poverty. We have high rates of addiction and suicide. We have, you know, in the U.S., people are, are feeling in despair on greater and greater levels. We have divisiveness. We can't agree on anything ever, it seems. So my belief is that when children grow up practicing these skills and throughout their school years, so let's say from three years old when they're first in pre-K or preschool, all the way through high school, during what is incredible brain development, Anyway, right, that phase of life, the brain is changing quite a bit. So if children practice every day through these years, the world will be different. No question about it. Because we know education is the best way to get out of poverty, right? But a lot of children don't get a good education because their stress levels are so high that they cannot effectively participate in school. Right. That's just a brain, you know, neuroscience says that when you're highly stressed, your thinking brain goes offline, period, like end stop. And if we have a bunch of kids in school that are on, that have high stress, then they're not going to be successful. That's why in this country, in major cities, our graduation rates are only 65%. 35% of our kids don't graduate in major cities, which is, you know, astounding. And when those children at that, that those numbers don't graduate, they have a very difficult time making a living, which then, you know, creates mental health disorders, societal issues. And, and, you know, it's a waste, you know, the, the, the life, the lives of these children, they, they never really get to their potential. And so we really believe that this is a change. This is a way to make lasting change. 
And just like teeth brushing, we're kind of on that uphill curve of getting everybody to understand that this is something we need to prioritize, you know, as a, as a country, as a world. Lara, you worked in the corporate sector for about 20 years. What was your motivation to become the co-founder of Inner Explorer? I think it was really about how mindfulness changed my own life. And then when I brought it to my company and my team, it really changed their lives over about a three-year period. We went from you know, a team that was kind of just marginally performing and not particularly happy. It wasn't a very cohesive group. And it went from that to top performing, incredible, like cohesive, loyal, great outcomes. And it, it was one of those things that I kind of went, wow, that's, that's pretty amazing that when you look at that as a group. And then the last piece of why I changed roles is that when I was at GE in their healthcare division, we build functional MRI equipment. And that was being used by um, researchers at the University of Wisconsin. And they were showing that the brains of long-term mindfulness practitioners were vastly different from a size and a structure standpoint. So it was their brains were more active in the parts that were associated with learning and creating and, you know, complex planning and those kinds of things. And the brain was less active or, or, you know, less triggered in the fight or flight system. So the parts that make us like anxious and sad. And that was kind of one of those moments where at, at the same time, these things were happening. And I said, oh my gosh, this is so pertinent for, for kids in school, because if we don't intervene in time, Right. So you, I don't know if you, do you know like how the brain changes during adolescence? Has, I don't know if everybody's always familiar with that. I have read the story studies. Could you elaborate more on that? Sure. So, you know, in the early years when kids are born and in their first five or whatever years, there's a lot of um, connections being made, neural connections in the brain. So every experience a child, a young child has, it's making a new connection. And so there's a big buildup during those early years. Once the kids hit maybe 12 years old or so, there's a, a process in the brain called pruning. So it's just like what you would do in your garden, right? So the brain kind of looks at the, all the connections and it says, all right, let me, let me look at what's used the most and I'm going to strengthen those. So I'm going to kind of cover them with a sheath, you know, it's called myelination, and I'm going to make those faster and stronger. And now what you're not using right? The brain connections that you're not really using that much, I'm going to prune. That way I'm going to like optimize how the brain is functioning. So that's what's happening all during adolescence. And really some of the mental health disorders like bipolar and a few others, they get triggered during adolescence. And the theory is that maybe the pruning, you know, wasn't like the pruning went bad basically. But for, for most kids, that pruning process hopefully is optimizing like these really healthy, amazing habits and skills that are being developed. But in children who have chronic stress, which is 25% of them in this country, right? Because they're living in poverty, not to mention, you know, it's probably more than 25% when you consider all the other factors, you know, in life, right? Divorce and, you know, all kinds of things. But those that, that grouping of children, when they go through those brain changes, 
the brain strengthens the fight or flight system and it prunes the thinking that what's called the prefrontal cortex or like the executive center of the brain. It's pruning those connections. So as those kids sort of go through high school and this is happening to them based on their experience because of where they were born and where they live and, you know, their environment, then they become less able to, to really participate effectively in school. They're quick to trigger, right? They think everything is a threat. You've probably met people like this. And so those kids become more and more of a behavior problem to the schools. They spend less and less time in the classroom because of that. And eventually they drop out or they barely, you know, get out of school and and don't have the skills to then, you know, compete in the work world. So they sort of continue to spiral. Do Do you teach mindfulness to children in the schools or do you teach them in a private setup? So it's all in the school. So our what we've done, and that, that's such a good question because when you think about how many kids there are in the world, there's a lot, and we could probably never have enough teachers for that. So what we've developed is an audio-guided program that's based on this MBSR that I mentioned earlier, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. And so schools use our program. So we're in about 4,000 schools now. They use our program. The teachers just log in to the site and the system remembers them. It's a sequence, as I said. So it's day one, day two, day three, kind of walks them through the process so that they understand how to do it, why, what's happening. And it goes from these concrete practices like, you know, breath awareness, relaxation, all the way through emotion awareness and connection and that kind of thing. So it's simple, 10 minutes, log in, press play, follow the program. The best part is that teachers don't need to be expert at this. Teachers just need to log in. They press play and they listen and learn along. They can also practice. Exactly. Yeah. You mentioned that 4,000 schools, are they in the U.S. or internationally everywhere? Um, We probably have about 3,500 in the U.S. and about 500 in other countries. We have some in Mexico and Canada, India, the UK, a few others here and there. We we haven't done that much globally yet. We're a nonprofit, so it's just always about money. <laughs> you know, when you go global yet, there's a lot of legal um, hoops that you have to jump through, and we just haven't had the funding to do that yet. Plus, you know, translation and all that. Oh, and we have some in Turkey, actually. We have a couple of collaborators that we work with there um, as well. How do you convince schools to incorporate these programs because mindfulness could be, or it is actually coming from India, Eastern countries. And somebody who is believer in Christian faith, they might have a position to this, right? Yes, that has been, that has come up in a number of cases and in a number of communities in this country. And what what we say is that while there ha- there's traditions around some of these practices, while there are some traditions, the practices themselves are really about being human, right? Paying attention to our direct experiences is a human capacity, right? Outside of any tradition. So while traditions may 
you know, co-opt breathing, for instance, as part of their, you know, process or, or any other thing, their, their, their human capacities first. And with MBSR, it's, you know, it's secular, so it's non-religious in nature. It's pulled from various traditions from various places around the world. But you probably know that these kinds of practices, like self-awareness type of practices, are embedded in almost every religion from the beginning of time also, right? So one religion doesn't really have ownership per se, because first they're human capacities, and then second, maybe they're part of various traditions. So we try to say like, this is kind of underneath all that. We don't use any any religious symbols or words or anything from any tradition. Like just, namaste? Exactly, like any of that. Because it's really what we're trying to make this as accessible because they are human skills. And then any child based on their own family of origin can put on top of these practices, whatever they like, right? That makes them feel happy and comfortable. But we're just teaching them the basic human capacities and, and hopefully it's accessible to any belief system. What practices do you have as part of your audio programs? So we have four age groups from three years old all the way to 18. So it's kind of in, in little, you know, it's sort of, I won't go through the different age groups, but you get the, you get the idea. <laughs> in each age group, there's 90 different practices that follow this MBSR sequence. So it goes from very concrete very understandable practices to more abstract pra practices over time. And within the narrative, so it's 10 minutes a day, and within that 10 minutes, the narrator will help the listener understand like the very first practice is why should I sit up straight and close my eyes, right? <laughs> That's not what it's called. But it, it, it touches on, you know, sitting up straight and, and we actually have the listeners slouch over while they're breathing and listening and just kind of experience what it feels like to be slouched and then to sit back up and experience what it, what it feels like to breathe in that position. And then the narrator sort of says, many people notice it's a little bit easier to breathe when you're sitting up straight. And that's why we invite you to do that. Same thing with closing your eyes, right? We invite you to close your eyes because it's easier to explore what's happening on the inside when you don't have the visual field competing for your attention, right? When you're looking around, it's hard to notice like sitting or breathing. But for people that are uncomfortable closing their eyes, we, we recommend they just look downward so that they're, they're not, you know, scanning the room. So those are just some examples. What kind of benefits have you received or heard from children? A lot. <laughs> so we've been at this for, I don't know, eight years now, I think, when our first programming went in, in 2012. And it really incredible. You, you might not, I mean, you, you'd almost have to see it in some ways to, to believe what kids are experiencing. I have, you know, probably hundreds of stories of direct things, but probably the one that was the most, if, if I can tell a story, if we have time. Please. The, the one that was the most like pivotal to me, and there's been, like I said, a, a bunch, was early on, 
we were in a community and it was at a place called Girls Inc. So that's an or it's a national organization here in, in the US and it's designed to support young women who are in, you know, sort of high poverty situations and it's an after school program. And they try to build leadership skills and, you know, they help them with schoolwork and they try to just keep them on track to have success in school. Like I was saying, if, if you're in poverty, it's really hard to have success in school. So we brought our program there and we just asked them because we we're trying it in different environments. So they started running our program. And one of the administrators said to us, we can't wait to see what happens with this one student. And they went on to tell us the story about this young girl who was 11 years old, had been going to Girls Inc. for five years. And they said, we have almost, like, we just don't know what to do with this kid anymore. She's violent. She steals. She's mean. She's uncooperative. She's disruptive, is doing really poorly in school. You know, she's on a bunch of different meds. And they work, they said, we work hand in hand with her teachers and her counselor to try to help figure out what to do next. They said, we meet about this particular girl every other week as a team because we don't know what to do. We would never turn away a girl. So that's not an option. We're not going to kick her out. But we we are kind of at our wits end. So they, they're like, we hope this helps. Now they went on to say that she comes from a really challenging environment where she has both of her parents are in jail. She lives with her aunt who's a known substance abuser. You know, they live in poverty. It's a very, you know, complicated home life. So I went back two months later. So just kind of think about, so for five years, this kid has been a challenge, right? They've had a ton of resources applied to try to figure it out and nothing has worked. And in eight weeks, I walk back in the door and the administrator has a stack of papers in front of her. And it just was a coincidence, really, that it was that day that I, I went back to see her. And she said, you won't believe what happened. She said, I have this stack of papers. This is, these are the nominations for Girl of the Month. So they have Girl of the Month every month, obviously. She, they said, this girl has never received even one nomination ever in five years because of what I described. And she said, in this stack of paper is a unanimous vote for this girl, for girl of the month. Unanimous vote. Every single staff person and every single girl that voted, voted for her. And as she picked up the papers, and I literally was like, oh my gosh, right? You know, it just hits you. And she said, these nominations tell of a transformation so profound that I can hardly believe it. And she's kind of reading through them. And she said, she's helpful. She's loving. She's doing better in school. She's helping the younger girls work through their, you know, their schoolwork. She's even nice to her aunt, who she had been, I guess, terrible to in the past. And, and, she's, and so the thing that really struck me, she said, so at 11 years old, she has finally found herself for the very first time. This is very touching. Yeah. And I hear stories with similar, you know, similar threads every single day. <laughs> Kids can be the catalyst for this change because guess what happened to her aunt? 
her aunt started practicing also because of the profound change she saw in her niece and said, I need to do this too, right? I need to get my life together. Kids have the capacity. And if we just give them a little bit of time and a little and an opportunity to practice, they can change the world. Like we haven't been able to do it for a long time. Adults have been trying. And so maybe this is the way that something can actually change. I remember this quote from Dalai Lama. I may be paraphrasing this quote. If we can teach meditation to a five-year-old kid, we can remove the poverty. We can remove all the stress, anxiety, trauma from the world. Oh my gosh, yes. It is so true. It is so incredibly true. And we have thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of kids that can prove it. I mean, it's, it's astounding. And that's, that's why I do the work. So you asked me what my family thinks about this. They think I'm a little bit of a lunatic because I left a very lucrative job and, you know, my husband is now retired and I just don't think I'll ever stop because this work is too important. We can literally change the world if we can teach small kids how to be compassionate, how to have deep connection, emotional intelligence, social emotional learning, breathing, relaxation exercises. We can literally change the world. And I'm by hearing this, I'm getting chills. Oh, good. Me too. I get when I even that that story of the the young girl at Girls Inc. I mean, that was years ago now. That was in 2014, I think. And I still can, it's like it was yesterday. I mean, this stuff is so powerful when you witness it. And even if you don't witness it, but you hear about it, like we, we can do this. And I'm so grateful to, to be talking to you today because I feel like you're doing such great work yourself, spreading um, some of this information out into the world. And I'm just so happy to be a part of the program and, and to be knowing you. So thank you so much for this thank opportunity. You. This is a very big vision. How do you influence schools to incorporate these programs? Very slowly. <laughs> but, but I'm not that patient. So we have started, when we, right when we began, we had three schools. In 2012, we had three schools that were willing to try this idea. And we didn't even know if it was going to work. Since then, there's a lot of scientific evidence on our program that shows kids do better in their grades and their test scores. They have better behavior. So they're, and I don't mean this is a behavior modification thing. It's not. It's just when kids are happier and have a greater sense of well-being, they don't act out as much, right? They don't, they're not angry. They don't, you know, lash out at their, their classmates. So they're, they just are, are more level. So, so 60% fewer behavior problems in the schools and about 40, 43% less stress. So when you take all those things together, the school districts are kind of like, hmm, right? Suspensions cost us money. Absenteeism costs us money. Teacher turnover costs us money. And when we can t make the case that those things are influenced by this program and this approach, they become much more open. So sometimes they'll, just put one, one classroom in or one school out of a whole network of schools and they'll try it. But usually what we're seeing is that they continue and they expand. So we didn't, have, we didn't have any full district projects 
back several years ago when we had, you know, we had three schools. Now we have 40,000 schools and we have a large number of districts that have done this everywhere. And then the last thing for anybody that's listening that's an educator, the most important thing that schools can do is block the time in the calendar, like in the schedule. So there's mindfulness, there's math, there's science. Like don't leave it up to teachers to try to fit it in, even though it's 10 minutes. Make it a part of the school schedule so that there's an impetus and a, a strong encouragement to do this every day because you, it is very clear from the research that this practice is much more important than anything else that's done. In, I mean, you can learn algebra, but you need to be able to focus, attend, regulate your emotions, you know, coordinate with people, be creative. Like those things are foundational. And yeah. if we're preparing kids for college and career, let's prepare them, right? For what Learning algebra may not help in the long run, but learning mindfulness will definitely right. help. My, when I learned algebra, the, the thing that it helped me with most is helping my son. <laughs> but, but other than that, I'm not sure I've used it. Not to down, I mean, math is obviously critically important. I'm not saying that we would take out math. I'm just saying, let's make time for that 10 minutes. However, and this is not before school or after school. This is during the school. This is during, because if we tried to do it before or after, you'd miss a lot of kids. You wouldn't get to them, you know, and then nothing changes because the kids that maybe need it the most aren't getting it. And I love what you mentioned that mindfulness is not a behavior modification program. We can have so many practices to change the behavior and we can always get back to our old negative behavior through mindfulness. We are raising our consciousness. We are raising our awareness. When somebody is aware, we don't have to work on the behavior modification. Behavior modification happens automatic when we are aware. Exactly. Exactly. We say all the time, you don't have to teach a kid to be kind. Kids are naturally kind. You need to remove the barriers from that skill or that capacity. Remove the barriers so that it emerges naturally. That's what all the mystics and the spiritual leaders have told. Yeah, I mean, be like every, child. Yeah, child, yes. ch child is vulnerable, kind. Society, culture, parents make yes. them unkind. <laughs> exactly, and, but it's really difficult, I will say, in in education because most of what we do is sort of that top-down intellectual learning. Right. I know algebra. I'm going to teach you algebra. I'm going to have you do some workbooks and then repetition is, is going to be how you learn algebra. And that, that is how you learn algebra, but that isn't how you learn emotional regulation and emo social emotional functioning. That's just not how it's done. So, you know, this is unique. Do you teach resiliency as well? Resiliency is a natural outcome of mindfulness. Just like, so we, mindfulness does basically three main things. And I'm, I'm very much, uh, you know, <laughs> this is a broad brush, but from a, a neuroscientific standpoint, it reduces limbic arousal. So stress response. So it downregulates that so that like, if you got cut off by somebody in your car, you might be like, ah, that jerk. After you've practiced mindfulness for a while, you wouldn't have that reaction, most likely. You would have something that would be much less than that. Maybe you'd be like, oh, that guy just, you know, I had to hit my brakes. Or you might just say, that poor guy, he's obviously not paying attention, right? Or he's, he must be in a hurry. 
So your responses change because your limbic system has, has regulated more. The second thing it does is it improves prefrontal cortex activation, which just means that you're thinking more clearly, you're thinking more creatively, you're able to process things with clarity. So, you know, prefrontal cortex is, is mostly our learning, you know, how we learn and how we relate in the world. So to activate that or to have that be more active is a good thing, right? That's, that's what the, that's why so many corporations and so many athletes are doing these practices. The third thing is resiliency. So what most people don't understand is that resiliency is a, there's a biological function to it. So resiliency simply means the time it takes from when you're triggered, right? When you get triggered by something, your thinking brain goes offline. And resiliency is the time it takes for that thinking brain to come back online, right? Because you know how sometimes something happens and you do something without thinking, right? That's happened to all of us. So with mindfulness, it speeds up the time that our thinking brain comes back online. So resiliency is a measure of time, right? And it, it shrinks that amount of time for you to sort of be thinking clearly again, which is pretty useful. Right? All three of it those is. things are very useful. Indeed. So, and that just happens naturally as you practice more. You are more resilient because you're you're not getting tweaked as often or by as much, and you're coming back on to sort of a a level set point uh, much faster. Outside of your programs, have you ever taught any kid in your neighbor how to be mindful? Yes, I have taught a bunch of adults and children over time. And that was actually, I would say, the impetus for Inner Explorer was that people, I find, really are interested in this field. People want to learn, but without a tool to practice every day, the learning is just like intellectual, right? I can tell you, hey, mindfulness is great, and you're going to be able to process your emotions better. So now you understand it, but that doesn't mean you can do it. It's sort of like understanding that teeth brushing is going to help avoid cavities. But if you don't brush your teeth every day, you're not going to, even though you know, you're not going to avoid cavities because they are going to develop, right? So this is the same thing. So as I taught children and adults in various places and in, in schools and after schools and in my neighborhood and my, my own family, what I quickly realized is that without a tool to help inspire that regular daily practice, they it just drops off because life is complicated and there's a lot of distractions. So especially with children, which is why we do this in classrooms, <laughs> because that's where kids are every day. Teaching is one thing. Second thing is, how do we create consistent habits for young and adults? That is the main thing, consistency, practicing every day. It is, day. yep. And that's why, so with our, our tool, and there's others, I'm not trying to promote, you know, our, our, our tool is really designed for school use, but there's lots of different mindfulness and meditation programs that are on the market. And the key is to use them. So again, we we're embedding into schools and we're really advocating for dis- school districts to build the time into the schedule because that's how it's going to get sticky. Right. If it's just sort of left to like whether I have time or not, it may or may not happen. Some of our schools do an amazing job, like they do it every day, year over year. Other schools struggle because they have competing demands. It's not, you know, it's not their fault. It's just that they're trying to navigate all those different priorities. So practicing every day is critical. That's why we're we're saying do it in school, do it every day in school. And by the time the kids graduate from high school, 
it will be so embedded in their lives that they will continue and that they will be different human beings than if they didn't have these practices. Just 10 minutes will make a huge difference, not just for the children. It can make a huge difference for anybody, for any age group. Definitely. Laura, how do you feel about mindfulness becoming commercialized? It is becoming a billion dollar or it is a billion dollar industry. Yeah. So as you know, we're a nonprofit and sort of we have this mission, as I've been describing throughout the program. But I, I feel like the commercialization of mindfulness is helping to raise awareness in the world, right? Some of the research that I talked about with the changes in the brain, are that's 20 years old now. And, and still people don't know, right? I mean, if you knew that your brain would be more effective, better, if by just doing this, you would do it. But most people don't know that. So I, I feel like the commercialization has helped elevate the awareness in the world. And so what we're really trying to do when we speak at different conferences and things is we're trying to articulate the importance of the pra like practicing every day, right? Just practicing every day because people glom on to an idea and they read the book and they go to the seminar, but they don't practice and then it doesn't go anywhere. So we're trying to just make sure people understand that it's, it's awesome to read the book and to go to the seminar, but you got to practice every day. So you pick a tool that you like or do it just by sitting quietly, whatever works, but do it every day. What's your mindfulness routine look like every day? <laughs> Mine is, my I, I sit in quiet. I don't use a guide because I've been doing it for so long. So my routine is every morning I wake up early. I'm kind of an early riser. So I get up before everybody in my house is up and I what sit time? just... It depends on, so during COVID, it's a little later because I don't have to get my son to school. Normally it was 5.30 because I would wake him up at 6. So I'd get up at 5.30, I'd wake him up a little bit after 6. So I sit for a half hour every day and that's just my routine. He then would do the practice actually before school. So he's a high schooler for 10, you know, he would do the program for 10 minutes. But now <laughs> with COVID, I don't usually get up till six or maybe seven even, you know, sleeping in. <laughs> Did you ever think in your dreams that you are teaching this mindfulness to all the children, but your own son doesn't do it? I know. It, I, I didn't. And it's funny because he's been doing it for his whole life, you know, so he's 15 because this has been, even before I started Inner Explorer, I was teaching, I was doing this work. So he's one of the narrators on the little kid program. We have a bunch of different narrators. And so he's one of the guides on the three, four, five-year-old program, which is kind of fun. And um, I love it. I love Yeah. I can't, I can't imagine what he'll be doing when he grows up. No, I know. And I, I do believe that he has, you know, he has t two type A parents, right? My husband and I, and he sort of kind of navigates and, I, you know, he's a teenager, which is always, you know, challenging, but he seems to have such good emotional regulation. Like he does not get flustered very often. He, he, so he's got some good skills that I think have tied back to his practice. This is beautiful. Laura, before I ask you my last question, I want to ask you, what's the impact you want to leave on this world through this mindfulness for children? Hmm. So I have a singular focus, which seems 
preposterous. But my singular focus is that every child around the world will practice mindfulness every day through their school years, right? From however, three, four, five, all the way through high school. That's my singular focus. And if, and you might ask why not college, but kids aren't in the same classroom every day in college. So it's a more, you know, you're relying on them to do it versus having it be part of a community, like a classroom community. But every child every day around the world. And if Inner Explorer can be part of that movement, I mean, there's a billion and a half kids, right, in this category of school age. So there's a lot. There's a lot of room for a lot of people to be um, trying to move this needle together. And if we can be a part of that, it would just be the honor of my life. There are many kids who don't even go to school. Correct. Yep. And where can our listeners find you online? So if anybody wants to check us out, it's just Inner Explorer, I-N-N-E-R-E-X-P-L-O-R-E-R.org. That's our main website. And right now we have a family, the family program. So for all age groups in English and in Spanish is available for free all the way through August. So if your kids are home from school or if they're not in school, whatever, check it out, you know, download the register on, on our website, and then you can download the app for free. It can be used on a mobile device, on a desktop or a laptop. So you have options depending on how old your kids are and, and what devices they may have access to. You can even, if you don't have internet access, you can even, you know, you could go to like an internet cafe or something and download the practices onto your device. And then you can listen to them later in an area that maybe didn't have good internet. So that we, we tried to build in a lot of options for usage so that we were including as many people as we could. So we'd love for people to check it out. And then, you know, depending on where your kids are, if they're in school, then we'd love to have you help us get it into your kids' schools. And if they're not in school, then by all means, use it at home. Thank you so much, Laura. It has been a beautiful conversation with you. Oh, thank you, too. And as I said, I'm grateful for the invitation to join you today. Thank you so much for the work you're doing, um, helping to spread ideas and, you know, opportunities for, for people to join. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode today. If you did enjoy this, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or you can visit https colon slash slash nishangarg.me n-i-s-h-a-n-t-g-a-r-g dot me. You can also share this episode with your loved ones to help them live a fulfilled life. You are not alone in this journey. We all struggle in life. There is no shame in talking about it. I go through my highs and lows. I get depressed and these practices help me in living a resilient life. You can also do this. You got this. Don't judge yourself. You are doing the best you can. And thank you so much again. <music>